when we catch up with Jesus' followers, what I find really interesting is, is that his followers, his closest followers, were doing exactly what we would expect his closest followers to do. It really, it's what we would expect anyone to do who's following a man who had died. We expected that man, and they assumed that man would stay dead. And that's what everyone assumed about Jesus. What we need to be clear on is that the morning, the Easter Sunday morning, that first morning <clears throat> when Jesus was put in a tomb, the next day was Passover, and they couldn't be with him. The next morning, no one was standing outside the tomb, counting down from 10, waiting for Jesus' grand arrival. It's like anyone sitting there, 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, cue the sun, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. No one was there because everyone expected Jesus to do what dead people do, stay dead. As a matter of fact, that Passover morning, <clears throat> the first time where, where his followers, where his disciples, where they were able to do work to go out, a group of them traveled to see Jesus. The text tells us this. That when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Salome, a group of women, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. And the reason they had to go purchase the spices was because the events that transpired around Jesus' death were so fast. One night they're with him, they know he's celebrating Passover, then he's arrested. They wake up in the morning and they find out that Jesus has been arrested and he's put on trial. And by that night, he is crucified and then he's buried in the tomb. They weren't prepared. No one was prepared. The events happened so fast. No one even emotionally was able to process it. And then it was Passover. And they couldn't go and, and, and they couldn't work through this and they couldn't be around Jesus, even kind of mourn with his body. So the next day, they go and they buy the spices. And after being with Jesus and watching him crucified and then being with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the, the part of the Sanhedrin, the wealthy men who had to pay Pilate to take Jesus' body down, they followed Nicodemus, and they followed Joseph of Arimathea and their slaves as they took Jesus' body and brought him to the tomb and wrapped him in the cloths of linen and embalmed his body. These women, the first chance they get, the first chance they have to go and visit Jesus, they make their way with spices to go and to re-embalm his body and maybe to let the emotions kind of catch up so that they can mourn and they can process everything they had witnessed the day before. Then on their way to the tomb, they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Who's going to roll it away? Because it's a big stone and, and, and we're three women. Who's going to roll it away? No one had any idea. They didn't go there expecting a risen Jesus. But when they looked up, when they arrived at the place where Jesus had been buried, they saw the tomb, or the stone rather, which was very large, and it had already been rolled away. And then Luke, who writes this account, who thoroughly investigated all these events, this is so interesting. He, he, he kind of tells us that, that these women who show up and they see the stone rolled away, we on this side of the story think, that's it. That's the clue. He's been resurrected. They see the stone rolled away and they peer into the empty tomb. But they peer into the empty tomb expecting to see that Jesus' body had been stolen, expecting to see maybe a dead body and the stone rolled away. They looked, even with the stone rolled away, no one was expecting a resurrection. No one was expecting Jesus to do what Jesus said he would do. They expected him to stay dead. Perhaps part of the story that you never heard of as a child, and maybe you spent time in church or Sunday school and you've kind of heard this story, but this was never made that clear to you, that all of Jesus' followers expected him to stay dead, even when the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. They didn't leave there shouting, he's alive, he's alive. They left there in a panic. 
They ran to the disciples. The disciples, these were Jesus' followers who were now hiding, scared for their life. John tells us this, that they, whoever they were, because we're not sure who they were that did this, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Someone has gone into the tomb and they have removed his body. But we don't know where they have put him. We don't know who they are. We don't even know how to contact them. What did they do with Jesus? And the commotion and the emotion behind these ladies, it was so frantic that the disciples didn't even believe them. As a matter of fact, the text goes on and says, but they did not believe the women because their words seemed like, like total, utter nonsense. Their words seemed like nonsense. What do you mean his body's gone? What do you mean he's not there? This is ridiculous. And if you were a part of a church at one point and you left, maybe you haven't been to church in years because it just seemed like a bunch of nonsense. Like you could get around the idea that Jesus is a real person because most people nowadays would agree Jesus is a real person. There was a point in time when some historians, there was argument over whether or not he was real, but that time has come and gone. Everyone agrees Jesus is a real historical person. But if you can kind of roll with that and say, yeah, even his life, there's, there's something to emulate about his lifestyle. Like he was a good guy. He taught some good things, and we should emulate some of what he's done. But, but this, this resurrection thing, I just, I can't wrap my head around it. It's, it's utter nonsense. Here's what I want you to know this morning. If that's how you feel, you're in good company. Because all of Jesus' followers thought the exact same thing. All of Jesus' followers, the men who had been with him, who would watch Jesus do the things that we've never seen, heard him teach the things we've only read about, who, who, who bore witness to his life, who heard about him talking about a resurrection, all of his followers thought it was utter nonsense. Please, a resurrection? The tomb's empty? These women are nuts. They didn't believe the woman because it was utter nonsense. Peter, however, he got up and he ran to the tomb. Peter and John got up. It wasn't good enough to just hear this commotion. It wasn't good enough to, to just hear this nonsense. They had to go see for themselves. So Peter and John, they got up and they ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen, the strips that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea had wrapped around Jesus' body, embalming it, lying there by themselves. And then Peter went away, not shouting that Jesus is alive, not shouting that a miracle had taken place. He went away wondering what in the world had just happened. And this is one of the most important parts of this narrative. That the men and women who were closest to Jesus, that the men and women who followed, the men and women who had heard, the men and women who had seen, that his closest followers are documenting their own skepticism and their own disbelief. They documented their own disbelief. They want you to know. They wanted all the readers to know, whoever would read this, for generations to come, they wanted you to know that when... When the thing that Jesus predicted would happen, happened, they didn't believe. That, that outside of, of this event, on the morning of, of Jesus being crucified and put in the tomb, no one was there expecting a resurrected Savior. Everyone expected Jesus to stay dead. They disbelieved. There were no followers of Jesus. There were no Christians at this point in time because everyone thought that, that all of the claims Jesus made, it was all pointless. It was all worthless because he is dead. On the evening, the very evening that they discovered Jesus' body was missing, that morning when the women discovered that Jesus' body was missing, on that evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together. <clears throat> I love this part. The disciples were together. They're hiding. The doors are locked. Why are they locked? Because they're scared of the Jewish leaders. Because the Jewish leaders arrested and crucified Jesus. Surely they're going to go after the followers. Pilate gave permission for them to crucify Jesus. Surely he's given them permission to come after the followers. They're scared for their lives. They're hiding, worried that someone's coming after them. In the middle of them hiding, 
In the middle of them disbelieving, worried, panicked, fearful, Jesus appears to them. Jesus shows up in the middle of the room, and their reaction is, is very much what I think our reaction would be if we saw someone die and then we're eating dinner scared to death and they show up in the middle of a room. I think our reaction would be the same as theirs. Here's what they say. They say they were startled. I think that's an understatement. They were startled and they were frightened. I think some of them said things they should have never said. They were startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. And then he said to them, and I think he says this to them with the biggest grin on his face because Jesus always kind of played with his, his disciples a little bit. Like, like, why are you so worried? He just, he has this big smile. You know, he appears as a ghost. The last time they saw him, he was hanging on a cross. And then he just shows up in the middle of a room. The doors are locked. No one's opened the door. How did you get in here? And he just kind of smiles. Why are you so worried? This is what Jesus did. It was his MO. As a matter of fact, another point in Jesus' life, the disciples are on a boat and there's a, the storm comes. Jesus is sleeping, taking a nap. The disciples get scared because water's coming in. They think the boat's going to go down and they all drown. And they begin to shake Jesus and wake him up. Jesus, Jesus, wake up. Say, Why are you so worried? Are you, why are we so worried? There's a storm. There's water coming in the boat. Yeah, yeah, I, I, why are you so worried? Because we might drown. Yeah, I, I know you might drown, but why are you so worried? Where is your faith? When did you stop believing? Why are you troubled? He asked them, showing up in the middle of the room. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts rise in your mind? This is what I told you while I was still with you. You shouldn't be surprised. Didn't you guys listen to me when I taught? And he knew the answer to that. Anytime he taught about himself, they didn't listen at all. They checked out of the conversation. It's like, no, you're the Messiah. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. This is some, some weird like M Messiah story that no one understands. He says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. This was the, the, the ancient Jewish Bible. They didn't call it a Bible. There was no Bible. This was their sacred text. It was their scriptures. He's saying, guys, you know the scriptures. You know the sacred text. You know what was written about me. Everything that was written about me in your Bible, in your sacred scriptures, had to be fulfilled. It says, the Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of everyone's sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of your sins. Repentance for the forgiveness of my sins. Repentance for forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning right here in Jerusalem. And then he looks at all of them eye to eye, and he makes this profound statement. This statement that we just kind of gloss over when we read the narrative. But he looks at all of his followers. He looks at Mary and Martha and the group of women and his disciples who are hiding and panicked, worried that someone's going to take their lives, who have run away from him. He looks at all of them, and he makes this statement. Ladies and gentlemen, you are witnesses of these things. You are the witnesses of these things, and certainly they were. They were the witnesses of the event that launched the church and changed the world. It was the resurrection of Jesus that created Christianity and launched the church. It wasn't the Bible that created Christianity or launched the church. It was the resurrection of Jesus that created Christianity and began the movement that was the church that would change the world forever. The Bible didn't come till hundreds of years later, but it was the event, this one event that marked a faith that would change the world forever. Before this, before his resurrection, there was no movement to keep moving. There was no dream to keep alive. Everything Jesus had talked about, all, all of the, the things to come in the future, they thought it was all a lie and it was dead because after all, he is dead in a tomb. But when he appears resurrected, it changes everything. The resurrection changed everything. 
The resurrection was the earmark on his life. It was, it was the point that put everything that happened before into perspective and everything that would come. It, it gave it the movement and the momentum and the passion and the fire to a group of people that were scared hiding in a room. And after this event, they would take the message and go and change the world. Jesus had claimed too much about himself. It was possible for him to, it was impossible for the Messiah to be arrested and be crucified and still be the Messiah. It was impossible for the Son of God to be arrested by a foreign power and, and, and put in prison and hung on a cross. And when those events happened, everyone unbelieved, everyone unfollowed. No one was a Christian until the resurrection. And when the resurrection, when they saw that, think about this, people like, like Peter and Matthew and Andrew and James and John, the eyewitnesses, Mary and Martha, all the eyewitnesses who just got done telling us about all of their disbelief, all, all the fact that, that Jesus, yes, he said all these things, but we didn't believe. We showed up expecting a dead body. We went there to re-embalm his body. No one expected him to do what he said he would do. And then he did it. All of them expected Jesus to stay dead, but he didn't. He did exactly what he said he would do. And that started a movement that changed the world that brings us here together over 2,000 years later. The reason that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead isn't just because the Bible tells us so. It's because there were eyewitnesses to this and the eyewitness testimony of people who said, I saw him risen from the dead. We don't believe Jesus rose from the dead just because the Bible says so. We believe because these people said so. We believe because Matthew said so. We believe because Matthew was an eyewitness to all these events, and then he wrote them all down so we could know. We believe because Mark. Mark spent time with Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. Now, understand this. This Apostle Peter is the guy who, who believed and then didn't believe and then swore he never believed and then believed again. Now, let me explain that. He believed when Jesus invited him to, 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 to take him out fishing and to follow him. He believed. And then when Jesus was arrested, he unbelieved, and he ran for his life. And then a middle school girl said, hey, aren't you one of the followers of Jesus? He said, I never believed that guy. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and he believed again. Peter spent time with Mark, and Mark wrote down all of the events that Peter told him. And then we have Luke. Luke was an investigator. Luke spent time interviewing all the eyewitnesses about the events and then writing them down in chronological order so we begin to understand these incredible events that surrounded this man, Jesus. We've John, the closest, the dear friend of Jesus, who was an eyewitness, who wrote so much about his best friend, Jesus, was an eyewitness to these events, talked about his unbelief, talked about unfollowing Jesus, talked about kind of running for his life and then believing because of a resurrection. Then you have Peter, that same guy who was so scared, who unbelieved and swore he never believed and came back. Not only did he transcribe uh, his, his words, his story through, math, through Mark, rather, he also wrote two letters to the church that we have that survived antiquity. A letter that we're going to look at this morning. You have James. This one's possibly my favorite. Not just because I share a name with him. But James was the brother of Jesus who never believed Jesus was Lord. And then he declares later on in the story that Jesus, his brother, is his Lord. Now let me ask you a question. And you've heard me ask this before. What would your brother have to do for you to declare him Lord of your life? Right? What would he have to do? I mean, more than a few card tricks, more than turning water to wine, right? I mean, there was something significant. James never believed Jesus was Lord until he saw his risen brother. He saw him die on a cross, and then he saw him raised to life again. He said, hey, guess what? My brother is my Lord. And then you have Paul, the last, and he would say the very least of these. 
who made it his life's mission to destroy the work of Jesus, and then he encountered a risen Jesus. We believe not just because a text tells us so. We believe because men and women were eyewitnesses and said, guys, I didn't believe. I was like you. I was skeptical. I ran away. I unbelieved. But then I saw the risen Savior, and I believe because the resurrection changed everything. The foundation of the Christian faith is an event. It's not a textbook. It's an event. It's not faith. It's an event. And it's an extraordinary event that has profound implications. Profound implications for your life, for your hopes, for your dreams, for your children. Peter, who peered into that empty tomb. Peter, who tracked along with Jesus from the day that Jesus invited him. Hey, why don't you take me fishing in your boat? This is amazing. Peter, who believed and then unbelieved, and then never believed, and then believed again. This same Peter writes this in one of his letters. This is written to a group of people that Peter knew, that Peter had taught. This is written to a group of Christians. Peter says this, praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when you read that, that sounds like, oh, that's just a really nice introduction to a letter. But there is so much more in that statement. Peter believed that somehow, some way, Jesus was the Son of God. That the man he called his friend, the man he watched do incredible things and teach incredible messages, the man he watched die on a cross, was somehow in some way the Son of God. He says in his great mercy, he has given us new birth or new life into a living hope. And this isn't hope like a verb, like I hope so. This is hope like a noun, like because of him, we have hope. Because of what he has done, we have hope. Well, why, Peter? Where do you get this confidence? Peter, why, how can you make such a declarative statement? You're the guy who was scared and ran away. You're the guy who was intimidated by a 12-year-old girl, and she sent you running for the hills. How do you have so much like, like strength and confidence in this statement? Peter, you're the guy who before the resurrection, you ran for your life, and then after the resurrection, you willfully gave your life in Rome to Nero for your faith in Jesus Christ. Where does the confidence come from? And he says this, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That is the basis of our hope. That is the thing that changed everything. Before the resurrection, I had no faith, but my faith in Jesus was resurrected at the resurrection when I saw my resurrected friend. Before that, my faith wavered. Before that, my faith doubted. Before that, my faith went away. Before that, I was scared, and I went hiding, but now I believe. Before that, I ran from trouble, and now I walk right into it, willing to give my life for my friend and my Savior, Jesus. Then he says this, this new life, this new life that was provided to us through the resurrection of Jesus is an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And that word inheritance is so important, because who gets an inheritance? Children. Children get an inheritance. And Peter is now beginning to talk and unravel this, this other thing that Jesus did through his resurrection beside the forgiveness of sins, but, but that Jesus opened up a pathway for us to have a relationship, a personal relationship with God, with who Jesus says we call him Heavenly Father, with a Father in heaven. He said, now that kind of bridgeway, that pathway is open. What I've done through my death and through my resurrection is open that up to you so you can have a relationship, a relationship with a perfect father, like a father and a son or a father and a daughter. 
But what comes next is perhaps the most extraordinary of all. He says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And the reason this is extraordinary is because Peter didn't believe in heaven because he was taught so as a child. As a matter of fact, there's a good chance Peter was never taught anything about heaven as a child because the Jewish scriptures say very little about heaven at all. As a matter of fact, he says so little about heaven that the Jewish leadership was divided in two. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the Sadducees, half the Jewish leadership, believed there was no afterlife, there was no heaven, that you simply lived life for the glory of God, and when life ended, life ended and it was over. Peter didn't believe because he was taught as a child. He believed because Jesus taught about it. And it wasn't good enough that Jesus just taught about it, but the same man that taught about it said, hey, I'm going to die, and three days later I'm going to come back because I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he did it. So Peter believes in a heaven because of Jesus, more so because Jesus was resurrected, because that puts a stamp on everything Jesus taught. If the man that predicts his own death and resurrection comes back to life, like does what he actually says he does, I'm just going to believe what he says. So everything Jesus said before that now has weight, it has merit, it has power. Because the resurrection changed everything. And all of this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief. And all kinds of trials. And this is extraordinary because Peter did not doubt God's love. He didn't doubt God's love in the face of adversity. He didn't doubt God's love in the face of trials and suffering. And, and if I can get a little bit more personal for you because I know so many people struggle here. Peter saw incredible suffering. He saw incredible pain. As a matter of fact, he watched his best friend go through incredible suffering and incredible pain. And not once did it cause him to doubt God's love. Because Peter's faith wasn't hooked on a God that only allows good things to happen to good people. Peter's faith wasn't shaken because bad things happened to good people. As a matter of fact, he saw that time and time and time again. Peter saw the worst thing imaginable happen to the best person he'd ever known. And he believed anyway, because his faith was not in an imaginary God that allows bad things to happen to good people. His faith was in a God that was introduced to him by Jesus, a God who invites you and you and you to call him Heavenly Father, a God who says, despite your pain and suffering, I am there and I'm with you and I love you. You see, all of Jesus' followers if you can move after the resurrection, they all suffered. Peter gave his life. He was beheaded in Rome under Nero's empire. <coughs> they all encountered horrible pain and horrible suffering. And not one of them doubted their faith in God. But they knew that God was real because of what Jesus told them, because of what Jesus showed them. And this is relevant for every single person in the room. Because every single person at some point in their life begins to wonder, if there's a good God, why do bad things happen to good people? And Peter would tell you, bad things happening to good people doesn't shake my faith in God. It makes me love and appreciate him more. Because he loves me and he has a plan through the pain. He has a plan through the suffering. And then he says this. He says, for you know, because these are Christians he's talking to, people that he's already taught. He says, for you know that it is not with perishable things such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. Or basically, you weren't bought from your sin with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And he, now he takes it all the way back to the beginning. 
the beginning of this series that we started over 12 weeks ago called 90, the beginning where Jesus shows up on the banks of the Jordan River and John the Baptist is baptizing people and he looks up and he sees this man he's seen before, but today there's something different about him. He's baptizing people and he looks up and he sees Jesus and he makes that statement that we've said so many times. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he made that, nobody understood his statement. But Peter, looking back on this after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, he says, oh, I get it now. God provided the perfect lamb, not to just cover our sin, not to atone our sin, but to completely take our sin away and open up a path so that we could be with our heavenly father, that we could have a relationship, that we could know him and we could live for him now. Behold the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice to take away your sin and to take away my sin. See, the point of all this is simply this. We know that God is for us because Jesus died for us, not because things always work out for us. This was the power of the resurrection. This was the power of the resurrection in a culture that was dangerous, that beyond everything they'd experienced, everything they saw, these men and women emerged with extraordinary faith in a God that Jesus introduced them to. And all of that could be believed because of his resurrection. That's why we say that the foundation of the Christian faith is an event. It's an extraordinary event with profound implications on your life. It's how we know that God is, that God is personal, it's how we know that suffering is not the evidence of God's absence because men and women who saw extraordinary things, who believed this extraordinary event and whose lives were transformed, they suffered and they experienced pain like we couldn't even imagine and it didn't shake their faith. The foundation of their faith was in a resurrected Savior. It's how we know that heaven is real, not because we were told so in some childhood class or in some Sunday school or we read a little kid's book and we believed in this. We believe that heaven is for real because Jesus talked about heaven and Jesus conquered death. And perhaps the most extraordinary thing of all to me is that the resurrection frees us. It frees us to accept Jesus' interpretation of his own life, that the resurrection confirms everything that Jesus had taught. One of the things that the religious leaders hated most about Jesus is that when Jesus would encounter sick people, he would walk up to them, and before he would even pray to be healed or tell them they were healed, he would say, your sins are forgiven. And they'd look at him and they'd say, who are you to do that? Only God can forgive sins. And I'm sure Jesus kind of looked over his shoulder and smiled and he said, that's right. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can do this too. By the way, get up and walk. You're healed. Go home. Open your eyes and see. You're healed. Go home. See, the thing they hate about Jesus the most, who are you to forgive sins? How, I'm sure even at some point his disciples doubted. Who are you to forgive sins? Only God could do that. And then Jesus died, and they said, yeah, clearly he wasn't fit to do such a thing. And then they're sitting in a room, scared to death, hiding for their lives, and Jesus appears. It's like, whoa. Maybe forgiveness is available. Maybe Jesus does have the power to forgive. Forgiveness is available to you, and forgiveness is available to me because you are loved by God. That's what his resurrection proves, that every single one of you are loved by God and that everything Jesus said before his resurrection is true because of what happened at the resurrection. 
At the crucifixion, no one believed. At the resurrection, everyone believed. And it started a movement that changed the world. And that forgiveness is available to you this morning. It's a forgiveness that needs to be engaged with. It's a gift, but it's a gift you need to accept. It's a gift you need to say, yes, I'm ready. I, I want to be forgiven. Yes, I believe Jesus is God. Maybe you've heard this story every Easter. You've been going to church for year after year after year, but it never really made sense. You just thought it just like, like the disciples. That this is all nonsense. Who would believe such a thing? You need to know that the disciples felt that way until they encountered a resurrected Jesus. And this morning, you can encounter a resurrected Jesus as well. And what was nonsense turns into the truth. And it's the truth that'll change your life. It is the resurrection that changed everything. After the resurrection, we've all been invited to, to live out this new covenant command that Jesus gave us. To love like he loved. To forgive like he forgave. Just like he looks at you and he says, I love you so much so that I'd give my life for you and I will forgive everything you've ever done. He says, you can do the same thing. You can love like I loved and you can forgive like I forgave. It frees you up to do that. The, 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 what happened after the resurrection of Jesus is something that needs to be engaged with. And it's something that after this morning, I hope you're willing to engage with because this proves, this is, this is the mark of the covenant for people that live like Jesus lived, that love like he loved, that forgive like he forgives. He said, this is the mark that you're part of my kingdom. Not, not the kingdoms of this world because the kingdoms of this world don't make sense. You're, you're, you're part of my kingdom. The, the kingdom that's this upside down kingdom. The kingdom that's been reversed. It, it, the kingdom where the king gives his life for his followers. The, the kingdom where the king is worthy of his name. The kingdom that he's inviting you to be a part of, and he's inviting me to be a part of. The question for you is, will you? Will you engage? Will you trust? Will you become part of his kingdom?